National Magazine Award finalist Mackenzie Funk writes for Harper's, National Geographic, Rolling Stone, Outside, the New York Times Magazine, and the London Review of Books. His first book, Windfall, won a Penn Literary Award and was named Book of the Year by The New Yorker, Mother Jones, Salon, and Amazon.com. A former Knight Wallace Fellow and Open Society Fellow, he's a co-founder of the journalism cooperative DECA and a board member at Amplifier. Mackenzie Funk, welcome to One Planet Podcast. Thank you for having me. We were just discussing before we began, you know, just how much climate change is on all of our minds and, and on your doorstep. And you were going to read from a piece from the London Review of Books. It just brings that home. Yeah. And this story was, uh, it was three years ago that the events happened in it. And funnily enough, we're, we're in the same town. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what happens after this story when, we're, when I'm done reading it. But we're about to change in response to all this. Anyway, I'll start. This was yeah, a few years ago, 2019 or so. The London Review of Books published this. And it goes, last spring, my wife, wanting to change career, was accepted by nursing school. And our family, the two of us, two young boys, a middle-aged dog, suddenly had to move house. We were leaving Seattle, where we had lived for a decade, a city with ample rain, the one within range of volcanoes and earthquakes, for a small town in the mountains of Southern Oregon. I put the climate change books I had agreed to write about for this paper in a cardboard box and put the box on top of the other starting to fill our garage and soon spring turned to endless destructive summer. The town we were moving to is called Ashland. It's beautiful, a surprise cluster of civilization just north of Oregon's border with California where restaurants and shops and stately wooden houses sit at the foot of a forested mountain range called the Siskiyous. It has 20,000 residents, but swells during the academic year with students and in the warmer months with tourists, many of them here for the summer long Oregon Shakespeare Festival. There are flower filled parks, excellent schools, people riding carbon fiber mountain bikes, retirees driving luxury cars, travelers with dreadlocks, nice dogs reliably on leashes. Restaurants and real estate agencies line the main street. People in Ashland are often from somewhere else and they pay good money to be here. The town's economy relies above everything else on its quality of life. I first heard about the smoke problem from a publisher of religious and philosophical books who'd live in, lived in Ashland for 24 years, raising his three children in a blue three bedroom house near the business district. Now they were grown up and publishing was dying and he had found he had trouble breathing in the summer months because there were an increasing number of fires in the surrounding hills. The forests here are dense and dry. The valley is shaped like a trough. When wildfires burned, the smoke lingered in the valley for weeks and he had to stay indoors. It had happened almost every summer for the previous six years. It was the new normal, people in Ashland said, an effective climate change. The publisher was moving to Los Angeles, a metropolis once famed for its smog, partly because the air there was sure to be better. When I visited him one rainy May evening during a house hunting trip, his home was supposedly a steal because it was selling for under half a million dollars. We drank tea at his kitchen table, surrounded by his boxes and furniture and former life, him at the end of something and me at the beginning. The house wasn't quite right for us. I decided we should rent instead and found a place a few blocks away across the creek. Jenny liked the old house we ended up with. We moved her in one June weekend, the boys crawling in and out of the doors of the secret closet in their new bedroom. She would live here alone for the first month, riding her bike to and from the university, eating at the grocery co-op, reveling in the fact that in a small town, everything is 10 minutes from everything else. 
the boys and I returned to Seattle and wrapped up our existence there. We're going to need new sunglasses for the boys, Jenny told me early on. It was always sunny. The air was so crisp. It was easy to get around. We'd be spending a lot of time outside. Then, a week before we were to drive the nine hours down Interstate 5 and finally join her, bad news. The smoke started, she said. It came early this year. Although there was little imminent danger of it, its spreading to Ashland, the nearest fire, the result of a lightning strike near Hell's Peak, was just nine miles from our new home. When a building is burning, firefighters usually try to extinguish every last flame. It's a fight to the death, over in a matter of hours. When thousands or tens of thousands of acres of forest are burning, the major goal is containment, a kind of negotiated peace with a force greater than man. Wildland firefighters try to halt a blaze's progress, encircling it with natural or man-made fire breaks. They work to keep the flames away from people and property, hoping to hang on until environmental conditions, humidity, wind speed and direction, change and the autumn rains finally arrive. Many wildfires are left to smolder and to smoke for weeks or months on end, causing little newsworthy damage. Disasters like the conflagration that consumed Paradise, California in November, killing 81 people, the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in the state's history, do happen. But the climate disasters facing millions of other residents of the American West is more insidious. In a town like Ashland, the smoke blots out the color of the houses and hills, rendering everything in grayscale, a slow burn diminu diminution of the way life here used to be. Yeah, I think it's so poignant. And, and you've written elsewhere about fires and firefighters. And you, you're saying that now, are you going to be moving now? Yeah. And the, the end of that story is that at the end of this month, we're leaving. This is the house we moved to three years ago. And in part because of the smoke, we decided, in, in significant part, we decided that if we're going to be buying, you know, as, as I mentioned in the story, we rented. And we love, we, we fell in love with this town since I wrote that. We, the kids landed well in school and met a lot of good friends. And so it's a hard choice, but the reality is we spent the last two weeks indoors, camps are canceled. And so for that and other reasons, we're, we're heading back up to, to uh, this, we're actually going to Bellingham, north of Seattle, but we're, we're headed north and we're not alone. We're talking to other families who, you know, we're probably a, handful of people I've talked to already who are thinking specifically about moving to the same place we are because of this. A friend on the phone last week saying he was going to go check out property in, in Minnesota. I think people are beginning to make sort of either rational or rash decisions about, about the wildfire smoke after the summer. So you're a climate uh, migrant. <laughs> I guess so. And and we and we hear stories. I mean, projections. You know that New Orleans will be an island. You know, so many the places that we loved will have to leave behind. We're we're just experiencing those things a little bit later than other climate migrants. We're saying coming mm -hmm. to America, but it's they're just living our future, as they say. It's it's coming to be our reality as well. It's interesting because. At the same time, I like to talk about the positive things that we can do. You know, I like to not to focus on the negative and the positive. But at the same time, in your book, Windfall, you've really, you know, traveled around the world and you've examined what has been sold, what has been greenwashed as an opportunity, a business opportunity. That's how we're getting people to buy into the systemic change. And so it's interesting because I imagine we do want these changes, but we have to be critical of how we're doing it and to make sure it's really 
benefiting everyone. Yeah. Well, I think the the honest truth is it it'll be people like me feeling a little bit guilty about having the means to see what's coming. And I've got the the background to know what's coming and to take steps to protect my family. That's absolutely what this is. And not everyone, of course, not even a very small portion of the planet has that that level of privilege to be able to not just have the foresight to see it because of just the background of education I, I got or the means to just pick up and move. It's a very small sliver of humanity and it's just degrees of, to which it's gonna be worse for, for others. And I think the big moral failing is that you'll see on a personal level and an individual level, and then on a national level, you'll see the, the, the nation state equivalent of people like me sort of defending their, defending their borders, building seawalls, building desalination plants, all these things that will, to adapt to climate change, that's a big part of, of the infrastructure push that, that Biden was going for that President Biden's is going for the, I think, especially this summer, people have been talking a lot about climate change and adapting to it. But to be clear, what that usually means is protecting nice places from, from the ravages of the elements or sometimes from the people trying to get in. And, and by nice, I mean, I mean rich. And, and the big policy challenge uh, nationally and then especially internationally is is what to do about you know everybody else who isn't isn't New York City and able to build themselves a massive seawall or or isn't someone like me who can just pick up and leave because we have that kind of mobility uh, and even even where I went in places like Bangladesh it's not the poorest people who are moving it's it's the maybe the more middle class you have to have a little bit of money to to move yourself out of where you are as desperate as they may seem when they're at the at the border trying to get into India or showing up in Dhaka that's not the poorest that's not the most destitute and and I think and I don't know we'd never know what happens behind the scenes and there's mm-hmm. much research and you know we have these gatherings internationally we're coming up to COP26 but it seems like cynically behind the scenes quite a while ago whether it's corporations or the nation state had decided well we do have these limited resources and we can save ourselves and then well we'll just see mm-hmm. but there is a lot of lip service and it's important I mean I'm glad that at least it's being addressed like the rights of nature and the indigenous you know experiences and but it just feel it does it, there's a little bit of a prioritization to save one skin yeah I think that's very much the case and I went to one of those one of those meetings the one in in Poland some years ago maybe 2014 and it did seem a real disconnect from what I'd been reporting in, in Windfall, which, which, as you said, was a book traveling around the world to places impacted. And, and it was people taking steps to deal with climate change, but not really to deal with emissions or to deal with agreements, but to literally protect their own patch or try to make a buck off it. It just seemed very disconnected from this political reality, which was sort of meetings to have different meetings, agreements to have an agreement later, things like that. Although I, I'm in favor of anything that gets the whole world to have these, I don't even want it just to be conversations, because as much as I believe in conversation information, I want it to be the action. So, but anything that might incentivize the difficult decisions as we face these challenges, 
and so they do that by selling it as this capitalist opportunity but it just feels like in the end it is a zero-sum game and they're offering yeah you know stocks in this kind of opportunity and who's losing out on that and I feel sometimes we have to think along like socialist lines sometimes we have to think about not making a profit and not having infinite growth yeah and that was something I I came away with absolutely and if not and even if you believe that capitalism works in in certain ways, the idea of unfettered capitalism, this sort of libertarian dream of the market will solve it, that's actually never been true. And so whether you have socialism or just just some guardrails on capitalism, you need to set up a marketplace that works for everyone and then let capitalism work within that box was was one thought I had. But it was it was laughable looking at the schemes I looked at in, in Windfall. Everything from, like I mentioned, desalination, seawalls, uh, these allegedly climate-proof crops or oil companies going for the melting Arctic to try to extract the oil. If you just let capitalism run or you know, hedge funds buying up farmland in places that are thought to be thir- fertile in, in 20, 30 years so they can sell the food to desperate people, just let capitalism run. It's going to just do what it does and try to make money. And so minimally, you need a lot of, of guardrails. And if we're trying to, you know, they're really, we're talking about two different things. We're talking about adaptation on one side, which is living in the world that we've, we've ended up creating here and we keep on creating. And then there's what, what's known as mitigation, of course, which is cutting emissions and trying to make it not as bad as it's already gonna be. And it's not either or. And, and mitigation is generally more, more uh, democratic, more socialist. It's generally you cut emissions, you cut them for everybody. And of course, how you cut them is brings in some equity questions. But adaptation is where there's a real danger of imbalance of the rich protecting their own patches or even trying to make money off that, off the off the changes, off the physical impacts. You know, the people rushing for farmland in Canada and Russia or or Greenland, rushing for oil in the Arctic. And that, that is a form of adaptation. That's a form of living in this new world we've made. And I worry most of all about, about that the rich countries aren't going to put money into adaptation for the poor countries unless they think it's in their interest. And to, to some degree it is. You know, I think a lot of the, we've seen the, the migration crises on, in Europe yeah, basically anywhere there's a, a rich country, it's a magnet already for many reasons, and climate is increasingly one of those reasons. So in a cynical way, you can justify it. Exactly. And the climate changes and the hardships experienced by other countries, the whole planet, it, it affects the climate change for us. So it's not, you know, mm-hmm. we're all connected deeply. And on the on the positive level, in terms of mitigation, have you, um, you know, seen, I know you wrote about geoengineering and, and different things, but have you seen some interesting solutions or grassroots movements that uh, make you hopeful or make you feel like, oh, this could be expanded? Yeah, I think it's important to it's important not to be too cynical about what was happening, you know, and and it's important to be clear that the book was reported between 2006 and 7 is when I really started getting interested in climate change. And then it was published in 2014. So it's a snapshot of a certain time. But even in that time, the bulk of the money was going toward toward mitigation. It was toward 
solar toward wind energy, especially, and I was looking mostly at the United States for these things. You're looking at Wall Street and where they're putting putting their money. They were putting their money where you would think, where where the layperson would say, oh, people are investing in climate change. They're investing in electric cars and all these things. And it's important to see what's happened since I started reporting this, is that in fact, wind and and especially solar have become competitive with with fossil fuels. And that's in part because of that investment. So it's not it's not like it didn't work. It was just it's not fast enough. It's not enough without without governments really incentivizing it more and, and putting some real rules around carbon emissions. But it is important to see that there have been the bulk of the money from Wall Street was going toward toward green technologies, not toward sort of padding their wallets with the you know the, the melting Arctic and but they were doing both and of course the less the worst job we do at mitigation the more the money will have to shift toward shift toward adaptation and then they're just there's just a more chance of of inequity if you do that and so there i was seeing more money go toward toward these schemes to adapt and i think we'll increasingly see that but i think we're going to just see more money going both in both directions but in terms of specific technologies, I mean, there were there were many. I'm not automatically a fan of of uh, genetic engineering by a long shot. And I was really worried about not. I, I was worried about how cavalier some of the stuff with the genetically modified mosquitoes seemed to be around how they did their testing for these mosquitoes that were what do they call them super sexy male mosquitoes that they would genetically engineer to to make the females want to mate with them. And then they would have this kill pill basically built within them that would kill all the all the mosquitoes after one generation. And so in places that were having dengue, this was this was specifically for dengue, but it would have worked for, for a few diseases, not for malaria, different mosquitoes. But the technology did eventually seem to have an impact. And these early studies they did that didn't have enough buy-in or enough explanation to to the larger public they seem to have gotten past that and so i on that one i said okay this still freaks me out but it is a technical a technological solution that seems to be working and is helping save lives so that one i was sort of agnostic on or at least more, more ambiguous and some of the desalination projects were it, it, the technology was getting better I and mean, the big downside of desalination of course is the if you're powering your desalination with coal, for instance, you are every every drink of potable water you get yourself, you're making the planet worse for everybody else. And but the, the membrane technology was getting better. And there were new techniques coming along and the plants were getting more efficient. And so you could see some some hope in that, but it's these are all still kind of band-aid solutions to the bigger problem. When it comes to to mitigation, I haven't checked out the the, the the carbon capture machines that they were still kind of a joke when I looked into them early on. Maybe they're not now. I don't know. I am still deeply skeptical of geoengineering, even if uh, that, that's a clear case of something that maybe it would work in terms of lowering the temperature of the planet, but it wouldn't work in terms of helping the people on the planet live the lives they've been living. That's my concern so far. And specifically, it looks like the it looks like it could, at least the ones I studied, and this is, again, almost 10 years ago now, 
it could disrupt the monsoon. So it could really hurt Africa and India, which would otherwise get plenty of climate impacts. And so you, you know, you, you may lower the temperature, but it wouldn't fix the climate per se. It would, it would still, weather patterns would still be problematic. My name is M. Weddle. I'm a social justice and human rights podcaster for One Planet. I'm in my senior year at Virginia Tech studying political science and sociology. Right now you're listening to Mia Funk sit down to talk with Mackenzie Funk about his experiences as a journalist and as a human concerning climate change, forest fires, and the dangers to our planet. Funk speaks with a passion and urgency about the state of the environment from a place of social awareness. He recognizes that he's in a place of privilege to know and to be aware of what's happening around us. His personal stories about his family hit close to home, and through those stories we can all see what it's like to raise a family in a dangerous environment, though Funk was lucky enough to be able to move cities. As he points out, many are not as fortunate. I find that it's important to talk about environmentalism in terms of class, because a lot of the things people tell you to do, use reusable shopping bags, only eat organic, those things are not accessible to everyone, especially people who have a lower income. It's much cheaper to buy a pack of water bottles than a Brita filter, and it's not the fault of the individual when it comes to climate change, it's the fault of these big companies and corporations that are polluting the planet and causing climate change on a larger scale. It's easy to look at what we do and what the people around us do and say, that's wrong, we should be doing this. But it's not as simple as that. You can't just tell everyone to go vegan and single-handedly save the planet. That's not accessible for lots of people. Fast food is cheaper than vegetables, and that is the sad truth. Same thing with fast fashion. Cheaper, easily accessible clothes are a better option for people who don't have a lot of money, though they are bad for the environment. And that's not the individual's fault, but it is something that we should be aware of when we're talking about environmentalism so that we don't fall into the sort of trap of blaming poor people. I mean, I've done interviews with some people who are, you know, regreening the deserts. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, I haven't. I think that's slow, obviously. But that somehow seems to me more um, benign as far as I, I don't, I haven't seen the negatives. There's some of the geoengineering is a little bit, you know, speculative. And I feel like we don't know what kind of imbalance, but the carbon capture, I think is, I think it's advanced a lot. I'm hearing a lot of, you know, I think sensible people talk about it. So yeah, I think it's great if we can, I don't know about burying it in concrete. And, and geoengineering, to be clear, I was talking about the SRM, the solar radiation management, which is shooting up basically mimicking a volcano, shooting sulfur particles up into the sky to to create a, a shield, basically, and not these kind of regreening projects, which which I think you're right, have are more more hopeful but but slow. Although some of the ones in Israel there were there were these projects where there was people were complaining about someone stealing rain from the next valley over. You know, if they're also cloud seeding or anything like that, 
or pulling moisture from the air, then, then is it sort of like stealing water from the person downstream from you? I don't know in terms of the the fire, wildfires that are taking place in America and elsewhere. Uh, is there some kind of cloud seeding taking place to as, as a solution? I haven't heard that. I don't think so. I think cloud seeding was more for for agriculture. I I looked at it in the snowy mountains in Australia a little bit, where they were doing a couple projects there. Just it was mostly experimental at that stage. And that was specifically to add to the snowpack so that the the snowpack would serve basically as a as a reservoir and it would the water would as it melted it would slowly uh, go through the through all the the agricultural areas during the spring and fill the river slowly rather than just run off when it falls as rain and so that was the that was the idea is that basically cloud seed so you can get more snow and so that it'll slowly melt um, but I, I haven't seen it for, you know, there were none of these ideas like nuking hurricanes or cloud seeding for wildfires. I don't think any of those things that I know of haven't happened. And your journalism has also taken you uh, to the Arctic, to, to Greenland. And, and so what are some of the troubling uh, developments that you've seen that you're talking about, you know, extracting oil and, and different things? Yeah, the... The Arctic is where I really started reporting on climate change, and I guess that's that's sort of obvious because it's warming up so much faster than the rest of the world. And I just I was a, a journalist in my twenties, I suppose, still when I when I went up there. And I my first trip, which also opens up the book, was about about the Canadian military going into the Northwest Passage, which had yet to open up, and. And they went up to the Northwest Passage, which of course is the storied route between the Atlantic and the Pacific that explorers looked for forever. And the worry that the Canadians had was that although they open la they own land on both sides of the passage, that ships would be able to just cross through there, militaries, anybody who wanted to go through there and Canada would have no say over who went there, especially if there was a lot of oil extraction, that maybe oil tankers would soon be running right through these straits right by these these indigenous lands. And, and so the Canadian military went up there to basically make a statement to say, this is ours, this is our territory. And, and it was sort of comical, in, at least my, my take, in that the Canadian military is basically threatening its allies and it's much smaller than some of its allies, notably the United States. And so they did all these mock exercises of, of shooting you know, big guns over the over the bow of of supposed merchant ships and and it was what it was it was mostly strange and at the time it was 2006 when I went on that trip and no one was thinking about climate change this way not yet you know Al Gore's inconvenient truth had just come out and we were still just talking about the UN agreements or you know mitigation measures light bulbs inflating our tires and our cars these these basic things and there was not a very sophisticated conversation yet about what people and countries would really do when it came to climate change so as much as there was there were the things i saw but really it was the way that i saw military strategists think about climate change and soldiers and and when it actually touches people's lives in in the west and north which it had really yet to do 
much. It was it was just a very different reaction than the oh I'm going to go back and and recycle more, which was what everyone at the in the not everyone but your typical person on the street thought. Okay, once you believe in climate change, then you're just going to go do this thing and try to stop it. And for me, the big going in the Arctic early on, where you could really see the effects of climate change before most anywhere else, it was the psychological that I understood that that people's first response to climate change isn't necessarily what we would want that want it to be, or think it would be, but it's it's really how's this going to affect my life. And, and kind of the entire, all my reporting on climate went from there. And it's, it's fear, greed, all these usual human emotions that I think are, that one, they're more interesting to read about than, than UN meetings. Uh, but they're also, I think, really important if we think about what's really going to happen in the next 30, 50 years. So I, I could talk endlessly about the, the individual things I saw, because I did see the yeah, the, the U.S. and Russia trying to claim the seabed in order to get oil-rich territory. I went around Greenland as they as the political parties promoted their the coming independence from Denmark, which will be fueled by fossil fuel deposits, uh, by zinc, uranium, rare earth minerals, offshore oil. Basically, Denmark gives so much money to Greenland that the only way that Greenland can be independent is to kind of sign away a lot of its mineral rights. And that was basically the trade that, that some most of the political parties were willing to make. The the more liberal liberal ones actually it was the conservatives who wanted to stay with Denmark, and it was the liberal parties who said yes, we want independence and we can do this ourselves. But the way they do it, of course, is is bring in these international uh, corporations, these mining companies, which are not historically the, <laughs> the biggest friends to in, indigenous communities. And so it was it was interesting trade. It was it was kick off the the colonists and bring in, you know, the mining companies, oil companies. But yeah, that's that was what was happening all over. But the Arctic was where, but the most important thing, like I said, was really beginning to see that people weren't going to react in the way that we thought they would, at least not just in that way. And I think it's an important insight. You know, I just, speaking about the military reaction to climate change, and, you know, in America, there, of course, has this huge standing army. And, you know, it's really one of the largest socialist, you know, bodies. Mm -hmm. And I really would love to see and perhaps it's utopian, but I would really love to see all of that energy, maybe redirected towards, you know, what putting up solar panels and wind farms. And I mean, it's a great organizational capacity. And I just feel like it's so misdirected. We now see, you know, return of troops you know scaling down and and i don't even know what was achieved really you know if one had really seen into the future i'm not Mm -hmm. sure what was actually achieved and i would have loved to have seen that energy put towards wow so helping save the planet yeah that's a good point that if in 2001 we had put those trillions into something other than nation building then i think we would be in a different in in a safer world than we are now and so that's that's absolutely true. And what I will say about the military is is one, it's I won't say it's apolitical, but it's it's not as beholden to the political parties or ideologies. And so the military was was earlier in this country to finally believe in climate change and take action based on it. So when it comes to climate, in some ways the military's been somewhat progressive 
insofar as they're drawing up plans to protect naval bases like Norfolk that could be having to deal with sea level rise. They were looking very early about the strategic implications of a third, you know, a third open ocean in the Arctic, not a, not a third, but anyway, another major open ocean in the Arctic. And early on, the Pentagon was gaming out what that would look like. Would it be a new Cold War? Would it be a place to have agreement? And and, and also in, in terms of emissions, I think they are, I, I don't think it's doing that much, but I do know the military is looking at trying to cut emissions given how moving all those armaments and those fuel intensive armaments all over the world is is a huge amount of, of fuel. And it's probably wise not to be so dependent on fuel anyway, if you're a, a military force. So I think they're trying to be more fuel efficient as well. But again, and another, the, another important thing is the psychological and and in terms of talking to people who don't believe climate change is real it's of course military leaders reach a different community than do the typical environmentalists and so when the military does speak on climate change i think it does sway opinion here and that's that's important to a degree well it would be great i know it's not your area of expertise but i i think it would be great to get them behind something because you have all that infrastructure and and the one thing is that we've been keeping you know soldiers or i mean i prefer like peacekeeping missions but we've been keeping them employed in certain activities and it would just be great just to see like it it affect you know push towards positive change and we know on the technological level that so many innovations do come and might be semi-funded by military and then they get adapted so there's a, just a there's a lot of growth there i i would think if we could like have a mind set mm-hmm. uh, change and and now i think you're working on a, another book you are you've some journalistic pieces that yeah i'm I'm almost done with another book. It's been a little hard with with COVID and wildfires to get the last bit, but I've I've written most of it. But the yeah, the new topic is in theory a little different than climate change, but it's it's similar in the sense that it's it's a way to tell a, tell a story about a very big systemic risk that kind of grows that we don't care too much about, and, and the, the topic being being privacy and and power and and data. And so the the stories I've worked on along the way, some of which have been published in in magazines, but for the most part, I've I've been working on the book. But the one example was the way that immigration authorities in this country have been able to target people living here, undocumented people living here, to a degree that was never possible before, because so many of us, especially in the United States, not so much in Europe, but there's so much data exhaust going off each of us that the longer you live in this country, the more quote unquote American your lifestyle, the more, you know, you have utility bills, you have a social media accounts, you have an American cell phone number, you have all these things. And and there are these data brokers in the background collecting all these things to, to create a sort of holistic 360 degree view of people, which is being sold now to, well, you name it, everyone from advertisers to insurers to police to federal government and so the book looks a lot of these these data brokers and the history of it and how the how these sort of 360 degree balls of information about each each of us came to be compiled and then now how they're affecting our lives today and you know it's everything from 
when when you sign up for a new bank account or something like that too those those questions have you ever lived on this street have you <laughs> which of these people who these who these people do you know and uh, what are the last issues? all these little things it's all from the same companies it's really just a few companies that have built these big dossiers on people and assigned us each a sort of a tracking number as it were and and so yeah that's the that's the that's the thing and and what it has to where it relates to climate change is that one it can be really boring and dense if you look at the the science or the the technology at least to a layperson i think obviously it's very interesting if you're if you're in that field but to try to understand the the bureaucracy of it and the logistics of it and all that that top level stuff it's a lot of a lot to get through and and that might be one of the reasons that if you ask people in this country what do you care about yes they care about climate change yes they care about privacy and and yet if you do a ranked list neither of those is very high and when you actually see what is compelling action you don't see much you don't see people doing much to to fight for say privacy law or even carbon emissions you see some but not the kind of democratic upswelling we'd need to really get action in this country. Yeah, I think that there becomes a certain, and for me too, I was, you know, very apprehensive about, you know, social media, though I eventually had to, of course, for our project, it's just something that one has to get the word out. And one just, after a while, experiences an exhaustion. So yes, I can, you know, advocate for, you know, policies to mitigate climate change. And, but with the privacy laws, I just feel like I have to be a little bit private, but it's, they make you really work hard for you just protecting your basic privacy. And you just, Mm -hmm. you don't have the energy anymore. Yeah, well, I mean that in that regard, it's absolutely similar to to climate change. If you think about individual actions, are almost never enough. Like what we need is collective action. We need we need rules. We need government level rules. We need policies. But to think that individuals could, by inflating their tires and and choosing a slightly different vehicle, really change the trajectory, or or even you know absolutely be vegetarian. But even that isn't enough. Like individual action at this point with climate change is not, it's important, but it's not sufficient. It's necessary for all that. And the same with, the same with privacy. You can do what I, I've, of course, become increasingly paranoid already a little bit as a journalist who, who sometimes worked in places where they were known for breaking into journalists' email accounts and whatnot. I already was a little bit aware of, of these issues before. And only more so in the course of reporting this book have I been careful about the products I use. And again, that's almost the equivalent of me moving back north to Washington State away from the wildfires. I'm someone with the time, the means, and and the education to deal with that. And most people aren't. So even if you can kind of wall off your own patch, we haven't really solved the problem for the people who are most vulnerable to it. And that's that's climate change. That's privacy. It's both because it's not obviously that that your data is out there, but but how it affects the decisions being made about you every day by by the places that you you would want to open doors equally to everybody. Yeah, so I feel like uh, many people decided that well, perhaps if 
I mean, we, the, we, the immediate uh, ways data might be used on a commercial level would be that, that people would be trying to, corporations would be trying to sell you something. And then you could just mm-hmm. say, well, I'm not going to buy it. I'm not, I have no inclination. Mm-hmm. You might try to put those products in front of me, but I'm not going to buy it. But what mm-hmm. are some of the other, um, you know, more sinister or troubling, you're talking about immigration or aspects where the government or other bodies uh, might be using that information and really discriminating against us? Yeah, sure. The And you're right that advertising is one of them. And, and we've seen to some extent how how advertising on social media has warped the the political discourse in, in this country and many others. So there, there are pernicious effects there, but you're right. In that, on that case, you can do what I do, which is have an ad blocker. And I never, almost never see ads when I'm browsing the web and it's just not that big a deal to me. And I, I like to tell myself, I'm not going to be swayed by that anyway, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But, but there are much bigger effects that happen every day and they don't necessarily happen as much to people like me, or they do when they're actually opening doors. For example, loans and credit scores. Um, if you're moving as I am and looking to buy a house, then then this matters quite a bit what the bank sees about you and what it knows about you. And increasingly, your credit score isn't just the, the typical, how much debt do you have how much, what percentage of debt is that? How have you been about repaying your debts? Things like that. But it's a whole view of your of your life. It's pulling in much more information about you than just those simple financial tools. It could look at things like, where did you go to university? And so to see your, your future income, it could look at what kind of houses have you lived in before? And that's one area. Another would be policing police now in many cases come to your door armed with a whole bunch of information about you, which is hopefully true, but in some cases it isn't. And so one of the stories I've looked at is is as we as we look especially at the relations between black Americans and police in this country, how these same tools are being used for, you know, rapidly solving cases in absurd ways. And there was one guy in particular where where they just pulled all this data together and there I go, this is the guy, look, he has a relative who owns this building, he has this and that, and, and they built this profile. And of course they could see that all these data points lined up with this guy, so he had to be it. And he wasn't, but it, it the, the data told such a good story about him that it went over common sense. And it, it's like any of us who's ever followed Google Maps into a lake almost, or you know, you believe what's on the screen in front of you. So there are, when there are mistakes in this, it's problematic. And, and that's, there are many cases around the world where, or I'm sorry, around the country where you, you'll see this, you know, this, this dossier says it's gotta be this guy. And of course, when the police go and get that guy, it's actually not him. And so there are cases like that. The flip side of that is that it's not necessarily better when when it's correct and that's uh, like in the case of immigration whatever you think about who should be in this country i think that everyone would agree that that immigration authorities shouldn't be going again going after people who are most established who might have american-born children who've lived here for a dozen years but those are precisely the people who are easiest to find because of how much data exhaust they've put out there. They're the ones with mortgages, with credit cards, with driver's licenses, with maybe a speeding ticket in their past. 
with utility bills, with established social media accounts, uh, all these things that are pulled together. So they're very easy to find. So one of the, so in that, in that regard, accuracy is actually a, a problem. Uh, similar with uh, things like facial recognition. If you're a, a person of color, obviously in many cases, having it not work as well on your face is, is, is horrible. Everything from simple things like you, you can't use your, your phone's facial recognition as well to uh, more important scenarios. But there are also times where you, you might not want to have perfect surveillance tracking you by face all through a city. It's, it's kind of easy. If you want to get someone in trouble for something, I think all of us, if, if we had perfect information on all of us, people would find something. It's always easy. I'm sure I'd get a speeding ticket at the very least every day. So it, it reminds me of that story that minority report where, because it can be, it, it's designed to be predictive, but that doesn't mean it correlates with the, and, and of course the misinterpretation of data. So no, it is very frightening. And we have seen that through, you know, a, a recent election. And so I don't mean this one because I want, I know that there's some conspiracies. I mean, the, the last, the, presidential mm-hmm. election before that, you know, being, you know, targeted for advertisings and, and, and kind of swaying the election. So, yeah, it's something that I, I would love to be more informed about. So we, we look forward to that uh, book. And I'm just wondering, you're also the co-founder of the journalistic collaborative cooperative DECA. Mm-hmm. Tell us mm-hmm. how that came about and why you felt it was important because we've seen the evolution some may say devolution but definitely the change of journalism in the last uh, decade or so yeah well this was something that the technological changes were were happening where you know the speaking of advertising and, and the data about you of course one one big effect of of all this information that's been collected is that it's much easier to target people with ads based on on what they're browsing on the internet or anything else they have about you. So the idea that you would want to go to a magazine as you used to in, in the magazine's publishing side would go to advertisers and say, look, we have, our readership is 65% males between the ages of 25 and 35 with an average income of $120,000. These are people you absolutely want to advertise to. They're young. They're going to sort of get brand loyalties, they get older. So come and advertise in our magazine and you'll you'll have this perfect target audience. And that's how many niche magazines and even larger magazines worked is that they had they knew who their readers were and they knew that they could sell that readership to advertisers as someone to reach. And that model in magazines, which is what where I mostly wrote, is broken. It's gone. Stories don't don't live in this perfect packaging anymore that you open it up and find it on the page. They live individually and they travel through the internet on their own. And that's where most people see them. They travel through social media. They're read on all manner of devices and, and sometimes they're read on the page. But because the advertising model was dying and, and for many other reasons, magazines were taking more and more rights because they were seeing that if you Maybe you'll have a, a magazine article that becomes a movie or, or it would become a podcast or something like that. And they wanted their cut because that was where journalists who've been paid basically the same since uh, the 80s 
there has been a lot of inflation, but not much wage inflation for journalists of, of the kind I do, that that was where the money they were making, those who were able to survive doing daily journalism were able to survive not because of the the magazine work so much, but the, the book deals that would come or the movie deals. So they started grabbing those rights. And at that moment, and for other reasons, a lot of us, and we were looking at, look at how, look at how stories travel through the internet. They don't, they don't need to be attached to a magazine anymore. And we thought it would be a good moment to sort of take the means of production and, and band together and try to, and build a new model that wasn't in the constraints of a magazine where we would take ownership of the work and then maybe publish it in translation in various places or, or publish the main thing and then have an excerpt in a magazine and that we would get the story out there in multiple ways because that's what really mattered to us, not that it would be siloed in this this or that magazine, but it would sort of reach everybody and that we maybe get a living wage and, and do that. So we, it was a big, a big push to get a group of writers from around the, around the world and who, who are writing in English, but writing in English about the world. And so we all came together to try to make that work. The other inspiration was Magnum and, and the great photographer collectives of, of the last 50 plus years, which of course they, they too saw that you know, we're the ones out there taking risks. And I don't mean to compare any of the writers in our group to any of the photographers in Magnum, but, but they're, the idea that they were out taking risks and taking the photos. So why should they be promising them just to time magazine or something? And that was their big insight. And, and some in our group said the same, you know, where we had people in the, in the midst of, middle of the conflict in Syria and, and like, why, why is this one person get to take this or this one magazine could take this and take all the rights with it. And I'm just left with this one check. And so that was, that was part of it too. And, the technology seemed to make it possible. The, the, the end result, by the way, was not as, as uh, perfect as we hoped, but I'll, I can tell you more about that too. Oh, yes. It's interesting because I wish we were actually working with Magnum. I think it's their 70th anniversary. And mm -hmm. I was actually just messaging right. with them to, today doing some interviews. And yeah, no, with the power of collectives, you have to take back. You present very well and you've you know traveled all over. Have you become involved or considered becoming involved in doing documentaries as we move into this audiovisual age more? I, I've been so stuck on this last book, not much, but I did actually both. There were folks who were talking about making a documentary of windfall in my book on, on climate, which I don't know that's ever going to really get off the ground, but, but I was working with some filmmakers and I, I loved it. And I was working on another project, which I don't think is public, so I can't name it. That was not my own, but it was just, I was brought on as a, as a sort of story consultant and, and a glorified researcher helping with, with finding stories related to, it was broadly related to climate change. And I did love both of those projects very much. And to be honest, it, part of it was just the collaborating here. You're often, as an independent journalist or independent worker, you're, you're hiding, even, even in the pre-Zoom, pre-pandemic days, a lot alone in your office somewhere. And for me, just to have this group of people I was checking in with weekly and working toward a common goal was, was fun. And it reminded me of my early days in, in magazines. And, the, and I, you know, I have, from time to time, been on been a talking head for a few minutes on documentaries and and that was fun enough but i haven't gone too much further on that we'll, well see 
It's interesting. I think you'd take very well to it. And I think that it's interesting the different ways of storytelling where you can be so expansive in long form journalism or within a documentary when you just do the word count. It takes a little <laughs> bit of an adjustment, you know, like, oh, I don't have to say that. The picture is going to say that for me. <laughs> right. Well, I can say one, one of my one of my good friends and a fellow journalist named Damon Tabor, he and I went and did a story that had was related to uh, climate change. It was about long term. There was a, a Canadian former dentist who was buying up the rights, the water rights to glaciers in Iceland and then trying to sell the right. It was a very strange story. And it turned out to be, I'm not sure it was a Ponzi scheme. I th- I think that we came away thinking that this guy was, he believed that he believed in climate change. He believed that water was going to be the future gold. And he was willing to cut all manner of corners to make his business idea work, but it wasn't pure scam. It was morally more like a, a scammer willing to do anything because he believed in this crazy idea and maybe, maybe something to do with maybe Bernie Madoff was like that early on as well. Uh, long, long story short that we, we did bring microphones Damon and I did to Iceland with us and we drove all over Iceland trying to find this dentist who was hiding out from authorities and and we recorded our conversations and had a great time and and we we brought him back to the <laughs> brought him back to the the radio producer it was actually it was radio lab and the the guy was so nice about it but he was like your recording quality is so horrible we can't we can't do it we can't use this and he even sent us a little guide on making podcasts about sort <laughs> how to do your recordings and all that so I would say maybe, but I would have to get some new new skills, I guess, or be more careful. Like we were doing things like recording in loud cafes, which which any podcaster knows not to do. And, you know, I don't know, we, we did anything wrong you could do, we did it. Yeah, technical skills are always important. We can't neglect those. I mean, also knowing how to get a good story is another thing. But I'm sure you can pick up those pretty quickly because the the more difficult so. skill, the more difficult skill is uh, being able to tell stories, tell stories and get stories and get the trust of the people who are confiding in you. And the technical skills, I feel like, you know, we all have a cell phone now and we can figure it out. <laughs> um, I guess in closing, you know, we're, you're about to make this uh, move back up to Washington State. You know, you're, we're all thinking a lot about the future, climate change, surveillance society, all these kind of systems we have to change. Uh, you know, what are some of the lessons that were important for you? And what would you like young people, what, what do you tell to your sons, for instance, what would you like them to uh, um, know, preserve and remember? Yeah, well, the it's interesting. We live a life outdoors here, at least when there's not much smoke. And it'll be that, that feeling of these places are going to be very different in their lifetimes. Is, I guess I'm glad for giving that that experience. But I'll say that about the only time that we're, we're they get in trouble, that, that my wife and I are unhappy with them as parents and that we come down hard on them is when they're not, when they don't show empathy and when they aren't kind to other people and thinking and trying to put themselves in other people's shoes. And that's as parents and, and especially through all this reporting, what I've tried to do is think through these, these solutions and these fixes we have for everything and make sure that we're not forgetting those on the, you know, that we're, we're thinking about other people. And so I, you know, especially after windfall, I, 
I had the conversation that almost you and I had with myself, thinking that capitalism won't do it. You know, self-interest isn't going to do this for us. And as, as silly as it is to think that that empathy will do it or, or caring about your, your fellow humans will do it, I don't know what else there is to hope for. And I I don't believe that that people do stuff purely out of rational self-interest, this this libertarian idea that I was quietly pushing against the entire time and windfall. That we do things just for ourselves or just to make money. I, I don't think that's that's not been the reality of my lifetime as a as a person in the world and not as a journalist. I care about other other people around me and, and how they how they make it. I wouldn't have I would have done something a little different than journalism, as I was just explaining to you, <laughs> than if it were just pure rational self-interest. And I think that's—I don't think that's just me traveling around the world. That's everybody, not not person to a person, but every place you go, you meet people who honestly care about others and and want to make the world a better place, not just for themselves but for others. And so that's the that's the, been the takeaway always. And I was so glad in Windfall to go to so many places in so many countries and meet so many people because I didn't, you know, I didn't come away a cynic. I didn't, I didn't get hardened to the world and think, oh, was, screw it. And maybe if I were a, a, a war reporter in the, in the midst and seeing the, the aftermath of Afghanistan right now, I would, I would have a different outlook. But as a person who did go to many parts of the world and, and to some conflict zones in, in Sudan, and, and see that people are people. I, I thought that that was the thing. Anyway, that's the thing I try to have my kids work on always is don't just do it for you. And because it's, because that's not actually the only thing that matters and it seems to be working. We'll see with, well, with them at least. Is, oh, no, it's a beautiful, and your empathy, you know, shines through even for, you know, mosquitoes that might be spreading, <laughs> you know, you're concerned about them too, because it's true, we have to put in perspective, we're all just part of this ecosystem. It's not there for us to dominate and extract as much as we can. And I think when we work with it, we begin to understand the wisdom of the natural world and of animals and how we're just part mm -hmm. of it. So I want to uh, thank you, Mackenzie Funk, for shining a light on corporate greed and greenwashing and the risks of this surveillance society so that we might improve our systems and work collectively for a better tomorrow. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for your dedication to the environment so mm -hmm. we can establish new norms and understand the structures of power and for your adding your voice to One Planet. One Planet podcast is produced by The Creative Process. The interview was conducted by Mia Funk and with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this podcast was M. Weddle. Digital media coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. The music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved with One Planet and be a part of Climate Change Solution, drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.